Hello everybody, I'm Suzanne Garrett from the 8.30 service. Our Bible reading this morning is from Isaiah 49, 1-13. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favour, I will answer you. In the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances, to say to the captives, come out and to those in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and will find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. Shout for joy, you heavens, rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Hey everyone, it's good to be with you today. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Almighty God, we thank you so much for speaking your word to us. Thank you that as we come to the pages of scripture now, uh, we can hear your voice. We can hear the summons that you place on our lives. And so we do ask, please, for your help by your spirit, to enable us to respond to this call with adoration, with worship, with obedience, with all that you intend for us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder, what did you want to be when you grew up? Can you remember what you wanted to be when you were a child? I didn't have that many ambitions growing up, but I do remember one job that I wanted when I was younger, and that was to own a video store. I know, real sort of growth industry, owning a video store would have been a great life decision. Didn't come to be, obviously. I asked my kids this week, actually, what they wanted to be when they grew up. My two-year-old told me, unsurprisingly, that he wanted to be a superhero. So I thought, good luck with that. Uh, my daughter, my five-year-old, uh, said that she either wanted to be a doctor or a nurse. And I thought, great, this is going to turn out really well. A doctor or nurse? or someone who works at McDonald's. And that kind of came as a bit of a surprise to me. And I said, why, why, why the last one? Why are you interested in working at McDonald's? And she said, well, it's 
because I'd be able to give myself all of the happy meals that I ever want. And I thought, well, you can't argue with that logic. That's a good ambition, if you ask me. Ambitions come in all shapes and sizes, don't they? Whether it is a dream job that you've set your heart upon or an exotic holiday location that you just desperately want to get to, we all know uh, and have, on some level, ambitions for our lives. But I think it's true that 2020 has made a bit of a mockery of our ambitions, hasn't it? Uh, earlier this year, I was supposed to be going on a family cruise holiday in March. In fact, it was supposed to be going the week that all of the cruise lines across the world shut up shop. A little bit after that, I was supposed to be flying over to the US for a conference in May. That ambition that I'd been actually looking forward to for a couple of years obviously didn't come to pass. Now, look, they're minor complaints, I know, and I'm not looking for any sympathy here because I know that many of you will have dealt with far more serious interruptions and roadblocks to your ambitions this year. But I think 2020 has made us all realise actually just how fragile our ambitions and our aspirations really are. I mean, what are we supposed to do with our ambitions in a time like this? Do we, do we hold on to them? Do we just press pause? Do we, do we throw them out the window altogether? Well, as we come to Isaiah chapter 49 today, we are going to see some of God's ambitions, God's lofty ambitions for the servant, this special person that, that God has put his affections on. Remember, we met the servant a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Isaiah chapter 42, uh, where we saw this servant who was going to come and establish justice on earth, who was actually going to be a covenant between humanity and God. And as we come to chapter 49, uh, we see what is called the, the second of the servant songs, these, these dramatic poems about the, this servant. And what it's going to show us is actually what God's ambitions are for his servant. And I think as we see that, it's going to teach us how to think rightly about our own ambitions in this moment. So let's think first of all about God's ambitions for his servant. Pick it up with me from verse 1. Isaiah 49, verse 1, Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Here is the servant speaking. And notice what he's doing is he's summoning the whole world to listen to him, which should give you pause for thought, because who can rightly do that? Who can summon the whole world to listen to his voice except God alone? I wonder if you know what the, uh, the most watched TV event of all time is, that, that the most people on earth tuned in to watch simultaneously. And if you answer The Bachelor, you're wrong. I'm sorry to disappoint you. No, actually, the, the, the most watched television event, apparently, of all time was the 2016 Rio Olympics. Uh, the estimate is that about 3.6 billion people tuned in to watch the Rio Olympics. That's an incredible amount of people, isn't it? An incredible number of eyeballs on that thing. And yet, that still leaves 50% of the world who didn't tune in or who weren't interested. You know, when it comes to God's special servant here, he will have a worldwide audience and no one is going to miss out. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you've got a Facebook feed or not, uh, whether you've got a TV and radio tuned in or not. Everyone is going to hear this servant in chapter 49. And, and you see how there in verse 1 that the servant has got big shoes to fill. Keep reading verse 1. 
Before I was born, the servant says, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. Now, uh, some of you may have heard that uh, my wife, Catherine, is pregnant uh, with our third child. We're very uh, excited about that. Uh, We are equal parts terrified about becoming a family of five, but I think we're looking forward to it. And actually, just last week, uh, we got to go and see the ultrasound uh, to see the little baby uh, inside uh, Catherine's tummy for the first time. And I've I've had that moment twice, and uh, my ambitions when I go and see the ultrasound for the first time, my, my ambitions are pretty low. And I've got to be honest, when I, when I went to see the ultrasound last week for my, my third child, my only ambition really at that point was, Lord, please don't let it be twins. And so thankfully, saw so the ultrasound, there's only one in there. Uh, phew, okay, cleared that ambition. My next ambition was, Lord, please let them have a, a clear heartbeat. And they did, wonderful. We've, we're thanking God for that. I didn't have any bigger ambitions for my child than just those kind of small hurdles to clear at this early point. But do you see in verse 1 that God has gigantic expectations for this child whilst he's still in the womb? God has got his name picked out. That means in kind of biblical terms that the job that this child is going to do has already been sorted. This, jo- this kid has got his, his future already mapped out for him by the Lord Almighty. Let's keep reading in verse 2. We get a little bit more insight into what this job is going to be. Verse 2, the servant says, he made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. Now, what Isaiah is saying there is kind of the same thing in two different ways, that God has made this servant into be like a secret weapon, <laughs> fit for a particular task. And at just the right moment, God is going to unleash this servant uh, to accomplish the thing that God has planned for him to do. That language of the, the sharpened sword, it kind of speaks about the servant being effective. It's not going to be blunt. and You're not going to need to kind of swing this thing multiple times to get the job done. No, it's going to, it's going to do the job straight away. The, the idea of a, a polished arrow is an arrow that kind of flies straight and true, that is going to hit its target, that is going to pierce what it is meant to pierce. It's an interesting description of what this servant has come to do, right? Because it implies somehow that this servant's words will cut and pierce people. It's interesting. The servant doesn't compare himself to, say, a shield and a helmet. No, he's, a, he's like a sword and an arrow. I think he's telling us that through his words, he somehow he's going to cause offence to people. He's going to cause division, which is a bit strange, isn't it, for this servant? Because as, as we read on throughout the, these verses, isn't the servant's mission to actually save and rescue people? So why would God send this servant to, to cut and to pierce? Have you figured that out? Billy Graham once said, actually, it's not getting people saved that's the issue. It's getting them lost. You see, before this servant can be the rescuer, people are going to have to realize that they're in need of rescue. And so this servant is going to come and he's going to convict them about their lostness, about their sin. So, so far in the chapter, we've heard a little bit about this servant, but we haven't actually kind of been told his name. So let's keep reading verse 3. He said to me, 
that is, the Lord said to me, the servant, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. Now, isn't that strange that this servant's name is Israel? Israel, of course, are God's special nation, this, this loved, blessed group of people that God has set apart, chosen to display his glory and his brilliance and his majesty to the world. God had high hopes for Israel. You see, all along, all throughout the storyline of the Bible, Israel were to be this light to the nations, this city on a hill who would attract other nations to their God. It's a bit like, have you seen those bug zappers, those blue light things that, that moths and mozzies are attracted to and they just can't help it. They're compelled to come towards the light and they get zapped. Now, in, in some sense, that is what Israel would be, but with kind of less zapping going on. Now, Israel was supposed to be this people who lived such holy and God-honoring lives that the nations would see them and be attracted to their God. But Israel ended up failing spectacularly. They compromised their faith. They, they traded in the true and living God for idols. And in fact, that's why they're booted into exile in the first place. What a disappointment. So friends, you see, God knows what it is like to taste crushed dreams. He knows the disappointment of failed ambitions because he's lived through it with his people Israel. And so for you, whether it's the disappointment perhaps this year of losing a job or maybe the pain of a broken relationship that you're living with or even just a failure to live up to the potential that you thought your life held whatever it is we all know what failed ambition looks like we know what crushed dreams taste like and God is no stranger to those feelings but you see despite that setback God is still committed to this nation. He is determined to start again with Israel, start from within. He has high hopes for this servant. This servant is going to be everything that the nation Israel was meant to be, but could never quite live up to. Uh, Tiger Woods, the famous golfer, maybe the best golfer who's ever lived, his father, Earl Woods, who was the man who, who trained and coached him, he famously said in 1996 of his son, Tiger Woods, right before Tiger became a professional, he, he said publicly about his son, please forgive me, but sometimes I get very emotional when I talk about my son. Uh, my heart fills with so much joy when I realize that this young man is going to be able to help so many people. And that's quite a lovely thing for a father to say, isn't it? But anyway, the, the, the quote went on. Earl Woods said of his son Tiger, he will transcend this game and bring the world a humanitarianism which has never been known before. The world will be a better place to live in by virtue of his existence and his presence. I acknowledge that only a small, my own small part in that, in that I know I was personally selected by God himself to nurture this young man and bring him to the point where he can make this contribution to humanity. Earl Woods said, this is my treasure. Please accept it and use it wisely. Thank you. That's quite a lofty ambition for a golf player, isn't it? I mean, is there anybody who could really say, you know, my life is better for having Tiger Woods in this world? I, I highly doubt it. Tiger Woods, you know, he, he's not really transformed people's lives. He's not brought about that new humanitarianism that Earl Woods hoped for, as successful as he's been in the world of golf. 
by all admissions, his personal life seems to be a bit of a shambles. He's a self-confessed serial adulterer. He's had multiple drug and alcohol problems, arrested for DUI a couple of years ago. You know, we can laugh at, at, at Earl Wood's ambitions for Tiger, knowing the kind of man that Tiger turned out to be. But look down and see God's ambitions for his servant in verse 6. Verse 6, God says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. It would be too small of a thing for this servant to just restore one nation, to just restore the tribes of Israel. No, God's got a way bigger ambition for him than that. Uh, the word that God says there, it is too small a thing. It's really the word light, too lightweight of a thing is kind of the connotation. And if you know the word that the Bible uses for glory, as in God's glory, it's a word glory that actually really literally means heaviness. And so I think what, what verse 6 is saying is that it is not heavy enough, not glorious enough for this servant to just save the nation of Israel. No, it will be more glorious, more weighty if he saves the nations, if he saves all people groups of the world. Isn't that astounding? Do you remember what we heard God say in chapter 48 last week? Chapter 48, verse 11. God says, For my own sake, for my own sake I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. God is committed to his glory, to maximizing his glory. So friends, have you considered how good it is that God is committed to his own glory? Have you considered what good news that is for you, friends? You see, because God is committed to his own glory, his ambition for this servant is that he would be a light to the nations, that he would bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That is real ambition. That makes Earl Wood's ambitions look tiny in comparison. God's ambitions are global, cosmic, universal. God will bring salvation to every nation through this servant. And so now you can see why verse 1 matters, why the nations are called to listen to this servant. It's because this servant's mission is to redeem them. God doesn't just want the nations to witness, to watch on as one nation, Israel, are saved. No, he wants the nations, he wants to invite them into that salvation. God wants to call the nations in and to relate to them in the same way that he related to his special chosen people, Israel. Now, we don't get told at this point exactly how the servant is going to do this. It's still a mystery, and we'll see a little bit more about how the servant's going to do this next week. But in verse 7, you actually start to get a little bit of a picture of what this salvation is going to be like. You see in, in verse 7 there that this servant, uh, although he will be rejected and abhorred at first, eventually the tables are going to turn and princes will bow down to him. Uh, the servant eventually is going to be honoured and revered. And then from verse 8, verse 8 through to verse 12, you start to see all these pictures of transformation that this servant is going to bring. Uh, you see there in verses 8 and 9 that the landless captives will get to go home. Uh, in verses 9 and 10, you see that the hungry and thirsty ones will find pasture and water. 
in, uh, it says there that the servant will lead the people into the promised land. He's going to guide them. He's going to be like a better Moses or a better Joshua. Verses 11 and 12, uh, people who have been displaced will come home along easy paths. And, and we're told there in verse 12 that they will come from all the corners of the world, from north, from west, from Aswan. Nobody really knows what that refers to. Some commentators think it might be a reference to Egypt. Some references perhaps even to China. No one really knows. The point is, though, that this light, this salvation that the servant brings, it is going to completely transform everyone who receives it. This compassionate rescue of the servant will make the people safe, make them secure, make them satisfied. It's such a beautiful picture, isn't it? And friends, aren't you glad that you live in a time after this servant has taken on flesh? Because you see, God's secret weapon is no longer secret. He's no longer hidden. He's risen. He is no longer hiding and concealed. He's on display for everyone to see. The salvation that God has come into of God has come into the world, and the offer of, of freedom and fulfillment is open to anyone who will just turn to the powerful, compassionate Son of God, Jesus Christ. And the nations are turning to Him for rescue, just like we heard a little bit earlier in Swee's testimony. The nations are turning to Him, and God is being glorified through His servant. And do you see the end of the matter there in verse 13? Uh, the whole point of this salvation. What is the end goal of this incredible kind of world-transforming rescue that the servant is going to bring? Read verse 13 with me. God says, Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. The end point of this salvation is worship. You see, God is going to do such monumental, incredible things through this servant that the, the heavens, the earth, the mountains ought to erupt in praise and shouts of joy. Anything less would be too small, too light. You see, when God's comfort, when his compassion arrives through his servant, then God-glorifying worship that's what is due him. Uh, that's, in fact, why God is doing all of this. So that the world would come and worship him. So these are God's ambitions for his servant. Big, world-transforming, joy-creating, praise-summoning ambitions. And so I want to think with you now, friends, as we sort of draw to a close, what these ambitions mean for our own ambitions in life. Let's have a think about God's ambitions and ours. And so to do that, let me ask you a question. Have you, do, you, do you think that God's ambitions have been realized? Has God accomplished this mission? Quite famously, back in 2003, uh, President George Bush stood on the deck of an aircraft carrier and delivered a speech uh, to a watching world. And you can see behind him there, uh, there's a, a large banner which says, Mission Accomplished. He was speaking about what he thought at the time was the end of the Iraq war. He proudly proclaimed, combat operations have ended. The United States and his allies have prevailed. Uh, he should have kept his mouth shut because it wouldn't be until 2011, actually, 
uh, eight years later that combat troops would finally withdraw from Iraq, uh, by which time over 100,000 more lives would be lost in the combat. Eventually, George Bush would admit the mistake and acknowledge that it was premature to declare mission accomplished when there was so much left to do. Friends, is God's mission accomplished? Well, in one sense, yes. You'd have to say yes, wouldn't you? Because Jesus has come in the flesh. He has finished the work that the Father set out for him to do. So yes, mission accomplished, but... In another sense, we, we haven't seen the final fulfillment of this mission, have we? Because verse 7, some kings and princes have bent the knee to Jesus. Some bow down to him, but many still scoff at him. Verse 9, some captives have been led out of darkness, but there are countless that still remain. Uh, news of this salvation has reached many nations, but there are still many unreached people groups. And so I think you would have to say that, that God's ambitions here haven't been fully realized yet. Now, of course, we do know that these ambitions will, be, will become a reality one day. God will accomplish this. He's revealed it to us in the book of Revelation. But it would be premature to say mission accomplished, wouldn't it, when there's still so much work left to do. Now, what has that got to do with our ambitions, our aspirations in life? Well, if you can cast your mind back a few weeks ago when we were looking at the servant song, the first one in Isaiah 42, uh, we noticed how in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul takes the servant songs and he applies them to himself. We saw how Paul uh, and the other apostles understood themselves as continuing on the work of the servant. Paul realized that God's ambitions for the servant were now, in some sense, God's ambitions for him. And so Paul knew he had the job to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to the nations. You see, the, the course of Paul's life, what he gave himself to, aligned with what God is doing in the world. Uh, Paul makes that crystal clear in Romans chapter 15, verse 20, that his ambitions match up with God's. He says, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. You see, all of Paul's life was subject to that great ambition, sharing the wonderful news about Jesus and seeing people turn to worship the true and living God. Paul would give anything, he would do anything, he would go anywhere for that great ambition. Now, it seems obvious to me, as we live in this world of crushed dreams and unmet expectations and failed ambitions, that it seems obvious to me that God's ambitions ought to be our ambitions too. In fact, I would go as far to say, friends, that the only way that your personal ambitions are guaranteed to become a reality is if they line up with God's ambitions. If you want to have bulletproof ambitions that even uh, that cannot be derailed by even a, a global pandemic, then you need to have God-orientated ambitions like Paul had in Romans 15. Ambitions that have eternal value. Ambitions that are not self-centered but God-centered. Ambitions for God's salvation to reach the ends of the earth and for the worship of the Son of God to fill every human heart. So friends, let me ask you, is, are they your ambitions? Is that... Is that what gets you out of bed in the morning? Is that your reason for living? 
do you long for your God to get the glory and the honor that he deserves? Does it grieve you when you see your Savior disrespected and dishonored and despised in the world? Does your heart ache knowing that the people you love who are still captive in the darkness of sin are facing a Christless eternity? If, if the good news of the gospel has come to you, friends, then that ought to be the ambition of your life. Before there is anything else that you hope for in life, above your career goals, above your relationships, above your material possessions, above your education, above any kind of personal fulfillment that you could hope for, that ambition must control you. So what does that look like to align our ambitions with God's ambitions? Well, quite simply, friends, it looks like a commitment to mission. It's a commitment to mission. That's what it looks like. The pastor and author John Piper uh, wrote a, a really cracker of a book a few years ago called Let the Nations Be Glad. Uh, and I want to read you a quote. It's a bit of a longer quote, so track with me here. This is what John Piper says. He says, Missions exists because worship doesn't. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever, he goes on. All of history is moving towards one great goal, the white-hot worship of God and his Son among all the peoples of the earth. Missions is not that goal, it is the means. And for that reason, it is the second greatest human activity in the world. If the, the exaltation of the Son of God is your goal, then missions is the means to that goal. So church, I want to call you today to play your part in that mission. If you want to see Jesus honoured, then you have a part to play in that because this mission is a team effort. It's not something which we can kind of leave in the hands of a small minority. We all have to play our part. There are different parts for us to play, to be sure. Some of us, for instance, will go overseas. Now, as I say that, don't be too quick to assume that that's not you. I wonder, have you actually thought and prayed about how God could use you, yes, you, to bring the light of the gospel to places where Jesus is not yet known? Our hope as a, as a church, as a leadership team, is that, that we might see some of you so transformed and captured by the glory of God that you would be willing to leave Wollongong, even leave Australia, and bring God's salvation to the nations. Maybe that will be you. Maybe you ought to consider that. The role for some of us will be to support and send those who do go. That's a valuable role to play. Uh, for some of us in this great mission to see Jesus honoured, we will be those who, who hunt down opportunities to share Jesus right here with the people around us. And if you're actually listening to this talk on Sunday morning, then this is a good opportunity to remind you to come to the evangelism training workshop this afternoon at 3.30pm with Millard Sleeman. Come and learn about how to share Jesus with people that you know. Some of us need to be equipped for that role because that's what God is calling us to. But I think all of us, at the very least, all of us have a role to play in prayer. All of us can pray. Pray for the nations. Pray for the 7,500 unreached people groups that represent over 3 billion people of the world's population. Pray that the gospel would go out into the darkness and pierce people's hearts. Pray that the Saviour would lead more and more captives 
uh, out of their, their captivity to sin. Pray that a chorus of worship would resound from every corner of the earth. Make that your ambition. Because that is a hope that is certain. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for sending your servant, the Lord Jesus, into this world to set free captives, to bring light and salvation to the nations. Thank you that this news has come even to us. Lord, would you captivate us by the, the incredible salvation that we have in Jesus, so much so that it pains us when we do not see you worshipped around us. Lord, make us uncomfortable with that. Uh, give us that burning, white-hot zeal for your glory so that we would go anywhere, we would do anything to make Jesus known to the nations. We ask for the sake of your glorious name. Amen.